1: Hello and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. All right, real quick before we get started on the show, I'm just going to talk about Treeline Academy. You've heard me say it. I can't even tell you how many times. Uh, Mark Levesay is treelineacademy.net. That's treelineacademy.net. Sign up. Use the promo code PC2020. Save yourself 20 bucks. Can't say it enough. It's awesome. Amazing. Most comprehensive e-scouting course out there. Check it out for yourself. Sign up. Use promo code PC2020. And now let's get to the show. All right. So I'm sitting here and I am talking to Carla Brower and she's got a pretty interesting story that I heard on another podcast and I just really had to talk to her and I wanted to share it with you guys. So Carla, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself?
2: Sure. Um, I'm Carla Brower and I am a pretty new hunter and angler. I've only been, gosh, hunting for about Four years. Um, I harvested my first animal three years ago. And I guess one of the reasons that seems surprising, aside from me being a woman and being in my 30s, is that when, you know, what feels like a lifetime ago, I used to be a really uh, strong supporter of animal rights and a hardcore, super dedicated vegan. So it's definitely been a, a big mindset shift to get to where I am today.
1: Yeah, without a doubt. So I kind of want to break that down and go into it a little further, if you don't mind. Like, I mean, what I mean, were your parents animal rights activists as well? Or I mean, I know you grew up in California and right? Is that where it was?
2: Yeah, so I grew up born and raised in San Francisco, so that will set some of the context for people. It was definitely a lot better of a place or more conducive to the vegan lifestyle, I should say, than, you know, elsewhere in the country, especially back then. Uh, but no, my um, I was raised by my single mom. and She was nothing anywhere near vegan or animal rights activist. Uh, you know, we didn't even have pets, really, when I was growing up. So um, we ate pretty much the standard American, you know, late 80s, early 90s diet. Um, I remember we used to have veal cutlets like all the time <laughs> when I was growing up. It was like the luxury, uh, you know, Friday night meal. My mom would get these little like pasty white veal nuggets from Safeway and we would like <laughs> eat them. And I was like, these are just the best meat. <laughs> So in retrospect, it probably tasted like nothing.
1: <laughs> but so how how did that, I mean, how did that change? At what point were you like, oh my God, I'm never going to eat meat again. I mean, that's kind of a shift where, I mean, I know people do it, but I'm I, not coming from that background or that, that reasoning. I really don't really understand all that.
2: Yeah, for sure. And it, uh, it started a little bit slowly. I didn't kind of dive head first into veganism. Um, but I remember one time my mom and I were in downtown San Francisco around like the holidays and there were, you know, a bunch of shopping going on and holiday displays. And one of the things that they would do every year, um, with animal rights groups in the area is they would do like a for free Friday and they would, um, uh, I think it was the same day as the big. Shop, up. what's that big shopping day that comes like right around Thanksgiving? I'm not like the a big shop
1: Black day, Friday. Know. Is that the
2: Yeah, thank you. That's Black yeah. Friday. So on Black Friday, when like everything is swarmed with people, they would set up these anti-fur displays. And this is like, you know, downtown San Francisco with like Neiman Marcus and Sachs and you know all the, the places that right. sold luxury fur items. Uh so it was just basically like, you know, a way to try to guilt people into, you know, not supporting the places that sold fur And I'd never seen anything like that. And I like, it was like the first thing that triggered my brain to be like, oh, animal products come from an animal. (laughs) And, you know, how it gets from one thing to another, how it gets from the animal to me is such a big mystery. And I was probably, like, 13, I think, at this point. And I was, like, devastated by the signs that they were holding and that they I think <laughs> they were showing some or something. Just devastated, like, seeing these, like, foxes and, you know, bobcats and stuff, stuff that reminds you of your pets. Not that we had any, but <laughs> you right, pets Right. Um, and it just kind of, like, started getting me thinking about you know, well, this is terrible. And I have these really strong opinions and feelings about this. Like, what do I do? And, uh, I remember I, I wrote to one of the animal rights organizations. Uh, I think this was back in the day when you actually had to get like a pen and paper and like, send it, <laughs> um, um, and told them how, you know, I thought it was great and I was never going to buy for. And like, they actually sent me a thing back. And this was the beginning of an interaction, that led to me not only working for that organization, but being their national for free Friday campaign coordinator some years later. So So, I kind of took it pretty seriously.
1: So, I mean, after, after that happened, then your next step was like, I mean, did you see some videos or something on just how nasty it was on some big commercial operation or what was the, what was, what was the, like the pivotal role where, okay, the fur, that's bad. Don't want to see these animals raised just to be slaughtered for their fur. And then it goes into the whole food thing or how, how did that start for you then?
2: Yeah. So it kind of begs the question, you know, if, uh, I don't like the way this animal product is produced. Well, there's this other way that I'm consuming animal products every single day. So, um, I started, you know, and as I became more involved in like the animal, you know, vegetarian animal rights scene there. Um, you just get exposed to things. And I saw, you know, videos of really awful treatment of animals on factory farms and, you know, intensive confinement and, you know, trucking and slaughter videos. And I was like, well, gosh, I don't want to participate in this, you know, three meals a day. Um, So I went vegetarian pretty early on. Uh, I think I was probably 15 or something. Um, And I started volunteering more with the animal rights organization that I would end up working at. And I remember really vividly, like, feeling like I was just so, like, such an enlightened person by being vegetarian. And I remember going to uh, volunteer for my first day at this animal rights organization. And I brought in a plate of cookies. And the first thing they asked me was, like, are there eggs in them? And I was, like, "Uh, yeah but I was like I just heard me I thought that they were gonna be so impressed that I was vegetarian and they were like um no we're not touching those take them away <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I met vegans for the first time <laughs> and after I got over being like completely mortified that I insulted them by bringing these cookies in um I you know started learning more about dairy production and all that kind of stuff and I you know went headlong into embracing like full vegan diet and lifestyle
1: so then how did how long did the whole vegan lifestyle last before because i i know how it went but i'd like the other people to know it too how the whole story kind of transpires into you know well maybe i can do this or i could do that but before we get to that how long did that go on i mean was it <laughs>
2: God, how old am
1: I? I mean, did it go on into Um, your 20s or was it, I mean. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I was uh, pretty seriously vegan and doing animal rights related things um, all the way through the end of my teenage years. And then into my early 20s. Sorry, there's thunder going on outside. Don't mind that. Uh, And into my early 20s. And it really wasn't until I went to college that I started thinking a little bit more about being a little bit more open minded about it. Um, And I went to college a little bit late. I didn't go straight from high school. I did some work and I did some community college between the two things. Um, But when I went to college, I was studying journalism. And one of the things that I, you know, I was doing uh, news broadcasting as well as like music shows and stuff for the, sorry, lightning or thunder is very distracting. (laughs) Um, so I was doing journalism and one of the things that I like to do is of course, you know, there's not really such a thing as an unbiased journalism. Um, I would like to try to get stories in that fit, you know, what I want to talk about, of course. So anytime there was an animal rights related issue or something that, um, I could kind of use as a way to talk about animal issues or vegetarianism or veganism. I would completely take advantage of it. And one of the stories that came up was uh, there was this woman who lived in the area, and she had worked with a you know pretty national big deal animal rights organization to confiscate and rescue all of these egg-laying chickens from this you know intensive confinement factory farm. And she, uh, I can't remember how many she took. It's got to be at least 50. <laughs> like there were a lot of chickens. <laughs> she was a really sweet woman. Um, and so I got, you know, I interviewed her for a story and. It turned out, you know, she was having a really hard time because the group that helped her obtain these chickens was kind of like, there you go, bye. (laughs) And she was left with all these birds who were, you know, kind of sick, you know, never seen the light of day. They were all just like in shell shock and, you know, just medical bills, feed bills that she didn't quite think through, I think. Um. And so one of the ways that she was trying to cope with this is she would go to the farmer's markets and sell their eggs. And she would, she had a big sign above her booth that said vegan eggs. And of course that would get a lot of people, you know, going up and being (laughs) like, what are you talking about? Uh, And I was of course also like, um, okay, I'm vegan and that's an egg and those things don't go together. Uh, but. Over time, you know, having met her and talked to her and understanding where these birds were coming from and seeing her every week, you know, awkwardly waving to her at the farmer's market as I went by with my little basket of veggies, I had to kind of ask myself, like, why why do I think that her eggs aren't vegan appropriate? Like, obviously, like by the semantics, they're not vegan, but like, what is it about them that would be unethical to me? And push to shove. There really wasn't anything. Uh, you know, the birds were living their best life. You know, they were getting medical care. Um, she was a really sweet woman who had the best of intentions and t- took them out of a bad situation. And was and these birds are. You know, I assume people probably figure this out, but they lay eggs whether you want them to or not. Absolutely block them or let you know the ravens and whatever get them and they can just sit there and rot so it's not like she was exploiting these birds so they were just doing what they were doing and ultimately I was like you know I'm just gonna buy like it's like a five dollar donation to like the bird cause I'll just take an egg take some eggs home and you know what's the worst that could happen Um, and I think it took me a long time before I actually like cooked that egg and consumed it. And I vaguely remember realizing that like I was in my twenties, I didn't know how to cook. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know how to cook much of anything at that point. Um, but I did and it, and it was fine. And I started to realize that eggs are actually pretty good. And you know, if I have the source of eggs that is, not just you know cruelty free, but it's like actively helping birds you know who were abused live a better life. yeah, you know, it's a pretty you know, as far as I was concerned, that was ethically a a great choice for me so so I ended up doing that pretty often
1: so the question um it kind of comes to my mind is are are like vegetarians or some people worried about an egg? That they're going to like kill a chicken or something like that when when they consume an egg, because I mean, no matter what happens, like you said, a chicken's gonna lay an egg and it's not actually fertilized. So it like you said, it would just go to rot. So I'm just kind of curious from like a, a vegan's mindset or or a vegetarian mindset, would that be kind of an issue as well or no?
2: Yeah, it's really interesting when you start to step away and look a little bit critically at, you know, veganism, or it, it doesn't have to be veganism, it could be any, you know, hard rule defined lifestyle, that they don't leave a lot of room for gray areas. And it really became it became this issue that was like, it's not about the ethics of the egg, it's the fact that it is from an animal, oh. it doesn't meet the criteria of being vegan, because it came from an animal, regardless of whether or not you're personally comfortable with it. And, you know, life is made of gray areas and nuances. And if you try to put yourself in this bubble where, like, this is good and everything else is bad, you know, it's nothing (laughs) but trouble.
1: (laughs) That is not
2: going to be a better place. So, you know, it did. That was one of the things that I started to realize as I was opening my mind to being a little bit more. Just being like, you know, I ate an egg, therefore I'm going out and buying, you know, a steak and some bacon tomorrow. But as I was starting to explore what my ethical options were that make me feel comfortable um, but weren't technically vegan, it really made me realize that, well, you know, you can't define ethics with one word or one category. There could be things that are not vegan or that are vegan that are very not ethical and not sustainably or ethically produced. And there could be things that are made of meat that are both sustainable and ethical. So, you know, you got to leave room for a little bit of the gray areas.
1: Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. I mean, just like even just modern agriculture within itself, there's so much, uh, you know, killing that goes on and spraying and damage to, you know, insect populations and pollinators and different things that people don't even take into consideration with, with those practices, but it's okay to eat the vegetable that comes from that. Or, you know, there, there's so much, like you said, just gray area. And then what other thing that comes to my mind, I just recently watched a video and it was actually, they were cloning meat and growing it in a laboratory. And to me, I was just like, that is more than unnatural to me. I, I can't get, past that fact i'm like that's not a normal life cycle and uh, you know in my mind i see it as that animal served its purpose right to eat and consume and then it probably would have died a brutal horrible death anyway or died of old age and starved to death anyway if i didn't harvest it so i mean that's how i justified it and then we'll probably get into that with you as well i'm sure um how, how did that go for you then
2: well, you're right. But, uh, you yeah, the more you look at agriculture, especially things that result even in vegan products, you start to realize that the systems are all very connected and it's really hard to produce plants and vegetables and, and fruits without using some kind of animal product or having some kind of ecological impact or, uh, you know, some kind of collateral damage. To animals. And so, technically, when you really, really get down to it, like, I don't really think there is anything that's vegan. (laughs) Um, You know, my my wife used to work for, um, she used to do like pest census, I don't really know how to call it, for um, fruit production places out here in the Lambeth Valley. And she got to see them harvesting, I can't remember what kind of berries they were blackberries or raspberries or something. And they have these big machines that go over the field, you know, over the trellises and collect the berries, and they kind of like shake the fruit out of them or something. Uh, I wasn't there, I'm not very good at describing this, <laughs> but the the moral of the, the story is that at the end they actually had these people going through where the berries were landing and picking out dead birds and rats and chicks and eggs and all the stuff that was in these plants while they were harvesting the berries. Now, I don't have a strong ethical opposition to eating fruit, <laughs> but it's, just, it's one of those things that you realize, you know you really start to look at how we raise or how we produce our food. It's never as simple as we think it is. It's never, you know, that idyllic, you know, perfect situation of these people, you know, like quietly, you know, hand picking berries. it's there's a lot more to it than that. And I think, you know we we live in kind of this blissful ignorance when we can go to the grocery store and get, you know, lettuce and, you know, ripe strawberries in the middle of winter (laughs) and we never stopped to think what happened to get them to us. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's for me, my ethics evolved to not be about the items I was eating. It was about figuring out how those items were produced, you know, how they came to me, what their overall impact is, was more important to me than, you know, did it come from an animal? Yes or no.
1: Right, so you uh, you started eating the eggs, and then you went to uh, work at a couple farms, right?
2: Yeah, and you know, like I said, eating eggs was kind of the you know thing that made me open my mind to other sustainable options. And um, there was a, a farm that wasn't local to where I was living, but it was. They were selling where I was living, and I remember going to the butcher counter, you know, where they sold, and kind of grilling them on all of, you know, the details of how I think they were, they were talking about pigs and cow and how they were produced, and you know what the sustainability of it was, and how the animals feel about things. And ultimately, I realized that there were some um, pretty amazingly responsible and caring farmers who were in the Bay Area who had, you know, products like actual meat to sell. And I realized that I will never really feel 100% comfortable with it unless I actually start to see it firsthand. Because, I mean, marketing is marketing, and you can say whatever you want about something being produced, however, you want to say it. There's very little regulation when it comes to, you know, is this quote natural and free range? Doesn't right. always mean what people think. Um, So I was like, you know, I want to actually go out. I want to meet farmers. I want to see, you know, what is actually happening. I want to witness maybe somebody slaughtering something. Um, And I ended up uh, subletting the apartment I was living in and quitting my job. And I spent about four months traveling around the southwest in California, visiting different farms, uh, seeing different practices and I got uh, a really good introduction to raising livestock that way.
1: So I just, if I find it interesting, like, why, why did you choose to do that? Why, you, did, you were curious at that point and just wanted to know, you wanted to see the details and, and see if maybe there was other humane ways of practices to do that? Or I mean, or were you just wanting to do like a journalistic research type uh, approach to it?
2: It would be nice if I had any kind of, you know, like financial or like journalistic, you know, whatever motivation. But it was really, I just have an intense curiosity. And that's kind of my personality. When I'm curious about something, I like to get really deep into it. And I also like to see things firsthand. Like before I I left, I had read a couple of books about sustainable agriculture and um, livestock farming in particular. So I was pretty convinced like, yeah, this is definitely something that I could get behind. But just like when I first found out, about, you know, the treatment of animals and you know, went down the rabbit hole of like figuring out, you know, everything about it and becoming vegan and becoming really hardcore about that. It kind of was the same on the way out. I was like, okay, well, if there's sustainably produced livestock, I want to see how it's done. I want to know how, you know, who these people are who are doing it. I want to like see it happen. And it was really kind of to appease my own curiosity. (laughs) Don't, yeah, don't strongly recommend people quit their corporate jobs and do things like this (laughs) for sure.
1: (laughs) So what comes to my mind is I, I can't remember the guy's last name, but he it will, will something down in Georgia. And he, I don't know if, have you heard of him? So I think it's like something Oak farms, fair Oak farms or something. Um, and, and what he did was he raised cattle and had a few other farm operations that he did. And he's like, man, I just don't like these practices. And the soil is just, you know, two seasons away from being fully depleted every year all these different things without putting all these chemicals on the soil and all these different things. And how is that affecting my animals? And he started thinking about it and he came across a book that was on the Serengeti and uh, it related to the Serengeti farming method that you could apply here to the, you know, to our modern agriculture. And so he got really, really intrigued by it and he decided, you know what, I'm going to try it. So every animal, so he raises like 30 different animals on his farm, and each one of them has an intricate role for the next one. So he's got goats that go in and they eat all the bramble and all the different whatever, and the sheep come in and they graze behind the cattle or in front of the cattle, and they get it to whatever height the cattle eats. And then there's chickens and ducks and geese, and, and they all free range. And everything just works, and it created this beautiful wonderful just symbiotic relationship with everything and everything just is balanced and it works perfectly and it, i watched that story and it was just so neat to see that i was like man that's the way to do it it's, oh, wow. it's, it's pretty cool you'll have to out. check them out um I, yeah. I there's there's like a a 40 minute video on youtube and i was just fascinated by it so now like the guy Drives out in his jeep into the pasture every evening and watches the sunset with a bottle of wine and all his cattle grazing <laughs> around him.
2: <laughs> well, that doesn't sound like a bad way to live. <laughs> no,
1: not at all. I think, and he's actually got like I don't I don't know if he still does or how it works, but I, I remember there was another video I watched. He was talking about how the eagle population in the area had. It just there was a huge resurgence because now there's all these chickens and ducks and geese and everything free ranging all over the place that it started out where there was like one or two eagles in the area and it soon became like five or six. And over these generations, as this farm got bigger, I think now he said there's like 32 in the area or something like that. I mean, it's just a crazy amount. And so now he actually has like the one and only predation permit for eagles for like a non-lethal. Uh, tactic to get rid of them so it's kind of interesting
2: yeah yeah enough chickens around you'll see your eagle and owl population absolutely
1: that's that's my chickens (laughs) (laughs) i've lost a few chickens to an eagle as well
2: yeah we love our our raptors around here we live right down the street from uh, a wildlife refuge and so we have a lot of them and there's a reason we no longer keep chickens here (laughs) Oh, <laughs> we no. lost their last one to an owl and that was it I was like okay they don't have the survival instincts needed for this kind of place so right now we just have ducks and geese and they we, they never have a problem
1: <laughs> yeah the geese are mean enough I think they can kind of take care of their themselves but yeah I actually had to put a run on on my coop because I just got tired of losing them so we let them we still let them free range but only if we're out and around and then we'll just kind of if we're going back in or something, we'll throw throw some feed in there to get them all to run in and close it up on them. It's not as good as it should yeah. be, but but it's better than the alternative, I guess.
2: Exactly. Yeah.
1: So kind of got sidetracked there, but I had to say it because it's really cool. And I th- I want you to know about it too. It's an amazing, amazing process that this guy went and, and undertook and it's pretty cool. Um, but I think that's kind of what you were kind of looking into just probably on a smaller scale. And I wish we could do that even more just across the board. But um, so you went and you did this and you had these relationships with all these people. Right. Um, And then you got, at what point did you get like actually involved with the, uh, the processing of the animals or the actual harvesting, we'll call it um, taking of the animal and then turning it into something and eating it.
2: Well, it was sooner than I really anticipated. Um, So the first farm ranch that I uh, went to visit was in New Mexico, and they happened to have a, a young steer who was kind of up for butchering. And... You know, I was there for a couple of weeks and the whole time I was like wringing my hands over the fact that this might happen while I was there and like, oh God, what am I going to do? And, like, am I going to be comfortable watching this? You just, you never know how you're going to react to something until you see it. And sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I feel like the more you worry about something and the more you feel like you're scared of it, the more you're like secretly like fascinated and just <laughs> trying to cover it really. Because at that point, like I like looked up, you know, they had a pretty decent library of farm books there. I looked up like everything I could read about on farm butchery and slaughter. And like at one point, you know, the end of my experience there was coming up. I already had plans at a different farm to to shift over to a different place. And that steer was still walking around. I was like, okay, guys, are we doing this or not? Like, come on, like... (laughs) I've been working myself up about it for weeks. Like, are we doing it? And, um, we, like the day before I left, we did the slaughter and, um, you know, initial butcher to get it ready to hang. And so my first ever experience with an animal dying in front of me was this giant steer and, you know, the farm farmers were great, but like, this was like their personal, they weren't market farming cattle. This was like a one-off, you know, son of their dairy cow, and they had never slaughtered anything bigger than a goat before, so this (laughs) was, like, I was not the only one who had no idea what was going on. (laughs) The actual slaughter went beautifully, you know, they had um, a rifle, and that steer died with a big, you know blob of hay in his mouth and never knew what was going on and it was very as good as you could hope to have it happen uh the first time you watch it and everything after that was just chaos just like all right (laughs) what do we do now we've got to get it hung up we've got to skin it um skinning a cow that is hanging from you know the rafters or whatever and like the amount of stuff that comes out of that animal just blows your freaking mind like <laughs> <laughs> like I mean you, you know how it is when you're uh getting the abdominal cavity of a deer and you know like, you start to get all the innards coming out it's like that times 10 and you're like I didn't even know this was like physically possible to be right. inside of that cow package <laughs> but it was an interesting experience um Definitely learned a lot. I never. I left the next day, so I literally never got to taste any part of the cow. Uh, just got to kind of see it happen and took off. Uh, but since then, I have slaughtered many sheep and goats and chickens and turkeys and ducks and everything much smaller, really. <laughs> and uh, it it was. It made me feel pretty confident that. You know, like I said, you never know how you're going to react till you get to a point. Um, but when a push came to shove, I was like, you know what? Once an animal is dead, you know, that is just work at that point. It's just how do we get this meat out? How do we take care of the meat? How do we make sure nothing goes to waste? Um, you know, to me, coming from the background of really caring about how the animals get to live. Part of that translates till you know, after they're, you know, hopefully they have as good a death as possible. And then after that, you show you're caring for them by respecting everything that they offer. So, you know, whether that be the organs, the uh, hide, the skull, all of that stuff, you know, making sure that you use it to the best of your abilities is really important to me.
1: So at that point, I mean, are you a full on omnivore? At the at the end of sorry, your experience,
2: sorry, no, that's my.
1: Uh... I said um, at that so at that point when you traveled to all these farms, you, did you? I mean, did you become a full on omnivore at that point?
2: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you know, at that point, you know, seeing how the animals and, and you know, I did not have any bad experiences with the farmers that I was going to travel to see, and I I did vet them pretty well um, before I went out. But everybody there it was just really nice. You know, they cared about the animals and the land that they were on so much. Uh, those animals were, they had a good life, borderline spoiled, <laughs> right? <laughs> as far as life go. Um, and you know, there and, and then being part of the slaughtering and butchering of those animals, there was nothing that I was uncomfortable with. It turned out, and you know, of course, after, you know, nothing makes you appreciate meat as much as actually being part of raising it and killing it and taking care of the the product. So, um, yeah, I, I did over the course of those months go from somebody who was like vegetarian and curious to somebody who was like, <laughs> do you need help slaughtering a goat? I'm here.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so at that point then, I mean, were, were you like, oh man, what what is a goat sausage? Or I mean, were you just starting to get curious and interested in all these things that you could do with all this, you know, newfound meat that you've come across and just wanted to make all these delectable dishes that you've never got to make as an adult? Or what, how did, I mean, how did that kind of transpire?
2: Well, you know, I, I really loved uh, exploring eating meat and having, you know, not had it for so much of my life. And then, you know, even when I was a kid and was eating meat it was like grocery store you know ground beef or whatever right so it was a really interesting and new experience to have not only different cuts of meat but with really good quality meat and also meat that kind of ran you know the gamut of quality and flavor because different breeds of sheep taste different from each other and Uh, you know, things taste a little bit different depending on what time of year you slaughter them and what they've been raised on, you start to realize, you know, you're like, you're talking about like cloning meat. (laughs) Like I, I mean, technically, I guess technically nobody's getting hurt in the making of this meat, but like, you might as well just like call it, you know, cloned protein and no flavor. (laughs) Right. You don't understand until you experience real good meat that it's, it's like wine. It has like a terroir. It has the flavor is impacted by everything that animal experiences. And if that animal doesn't, if it's, if it's not an animal, it's not experiencing anything. Like I can't even imagine what that tastes like sadness. Um, (laughs) so yeah, it was really interesting to, to not only get to enjoy meat period, but to get an appreciation of how different and interesting it can be. I think people think, you know, well, beef's beef. And know, like, no, it's not. No. <laughs> yeah,
1: I definitely agree with that one. I mean, at our household, we barely buy any any beef or pretty much any meat, really, from a store. We raise our own birds here um, at, at the homestead. And then I have a friend that raises cattle. So we always get our beef from him. And then this year... We, we only, we only normally do a half, but as our kids are getting older, it's like, oh my gosh, we go through an entire half, a side of beef before like the next one's even ready. So now my wife's like, well, wow, this year, instead of being misser, I only want to shoot like a 140 inch deer. I think you should fill the freezer a little more before you go down that road. So this year is going to be interesting. I'm going to try and do more deer than I normally do. Yeah, But, um, so how did you get into hunting then now that we're talking about it? I mean, obviously it's kind of a natural progression. The curiosity is getting you and now you're, you're, you're doing all these different animals and you're like, okay, I, I mean, I can see where the progression would go, but how do you, how do you just say, okay, now I want to go after wild game?
2: Yeah, it was a long process to get there for sure. And I think, uh, farming and raising animals was uh, a really good source of a lot of different kinds of meat, you know, I was able to raise a fair amount of different critters. But ultimately, where I ended up, we were only able to have um, herbs. So we had chickens and ducks and stuff. And one cannot live on poultry alone. Um, and I, <laughs> I had always been really interested in hunting. And, you know, it just seems like such a, a you know, talk about an ethical way to get meat. Like it's, there's an argument. It's more even, even more ethical than farming because, you know, technically, you know, they're not living purely wild lives. They have a pretty cush lifestyle. There's no famine. There's no disease. <laughs> there's no right. predators here, but you know, push them to shove. I don't know if our geese would choose to have this cushy luxury life versus just go out and be a wild goose. Um, so I knew that it was something I wanted to explore, and it is one thing to decide you want to explore hunting and a very different thing to actually go out and do it with having like zero experience. I didn't know anybody who was hunting. Um, and it was just like one of, you know, it's a, its an intimidating thing to start to get involved in, especially, you know, like you know, I was in my 30s when I started doing this. And it's not like you want to be the 30 something year old at the hunters out of class with all the like
1: 12 year olds.
2: Like I teach hunter's that now and I would not want to be in that class. Like it's, it's a great class. I still learn something every time I do it, but it, you know, you don't want to be the only grown adult in the room. So, um, yeah, it, it, I remember buying a hunting license one time and even that was just kind of like a, a struggle to figure out like what kind of hunting license do I need? Where do I get it? You know, like, it was like there was much Googling and I finally got it and I was like, OK, I have a hunting license. What do I do now? <laughs> and I basically just donated my money to uh, Oregon Fish and Wildlife and never did anything with it. And then the next year I realized we needed to buy a deer tag. And then there were, you know, all of the things that go into like, you know, the general season versus the controlled hunts and all of that. And so I was like, okay, general season, deer tag, got it. I even (laughs) went scouting that year. Like I like, found a place that was in the season area. And I went out and I camped for three nights and I found deer poop and everything. And then I just was like, I just couldn't go out in the woods with a gun and like, do it. I just had no idea what I was doing. And it was honestly, in retrospect, wise of me to not just barrel ahead with having no clue. Um, but I remember, you know, I had a, I already had a rifle at this point, And I were just trying to find a place to sight it in. And there was like, nowhere and I did, wasn't comfortable going out into the you know wilderness by myself and setting up a target and doing it myself and I had never sighted in anything before and I realized well that's like a huge stumbling block you know like none of the local ranges were open to the public and then if they were they were you know they weren't going to let you shoot a 30-06 there so yeah it, it was quite a uh, interesting journey.
1: <laughs> so I kind of want to backtrack on that a little bit then Um, and just kind of, how did you get to the point to where you bought a gun? Was that when you decided you wanted to start hunting or was it something that you, you acquired through, you know, raising the animals and dispatching them in order to process them?
2: The gun was actually in my family so it was basically me insisting that it be given to me.
1: (laughs) Okay. Okay.
2: I I will put it to more use than it will be sitting in my family's gun safe.
1: (laughs) Okay. Okay. That makes a little more sense. We're, and then my next question was, you know, a lot of times there's people that are vegan and have a mindset. And then when they hear a gun, they think of either hunters or killing or whatever. And so they're kind of anti-gun too. I mean, was that something that was kind of your beliefs before all this changed? Did you decide you wanted that gun to uh, pursue these animals?
2: Yeah, I mean, I didn't grow up uh, feeling comfortable with guns or using them, but I didn't grow up really hating them either. I was kind of, you know, one of those people who was like, guns exist and I don't have anything to do with them, but that's fine. You know, like I knew uh, we we had them in my family and, you know, my mom is, you know, she, she's wonderful. She's ex-military and she, um, always had guns. I don't think I ever actually saw her shoot and I don't think she would honestly. Now I think she's probably a little intimidated because it's just been so long, but, um, Yeah, we didn't talk about it a lot. And I do remember living in San Francisco. And uh, at some point, there was like a series of break-ins in our area. And I lived on like the bottom, you know, ground floor. And it was like an area that was, you know, know, not the safest. And at some point, I was like, well, maybe I could, you know, have my mom give me one of her guns. And we could have it in the house for self-defense. And like the look on my roommate's face at that moment, like was just like... (laughs) I had I been like, well, maybe we should just invite Satan in, and he could protect us. Like I might as well have just said that. <laughs> it did not go over well, and they were like, "You were never supposed to bring a gun into this house." And how could you even say that? And I was like, "Oh wow, okay." So like I get it. People have really strong opinions. Um, I would say, you know, I like, you know, just kind of like anything. The more you learn about something, the more your perspective changes on them. And honestly, the more I've handled guns and and shot them and um you know i've I've shot at this point more than just hunting guns you know i feel more comfortable with them and you know i i probably more in favor of the second amendment than i had been before i started hunting and i know even with between hunters those opinions really differ i think everybody kind of comes at it from their own perspective um but for me yeah like i i'm Very comfortable with them. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So I always just find it interesting because I've grown up around guns. They've always just been around, they've been a part of my life. Um, Since as early as I can remember, my dad would, uh, you know, show me gun safety and say, here, can you pull this slide back and do all these things on, you know, on a handgun? And what I didn't know is he was actually testing to see how safe or unsafe certain things would probably be around the house if I could actually rack a slide back on something that he knew <laughs> that, you know, just little tips that I've learned along the way, but um that, that I think he was probably testing me to see, you know, how secure things really were or whatever. But um it's just kind of a perspective that I'm always interested in an outside perspective as far as that goes. And it kind of sounds like they were kind of part of your life a little more than um like some of your friends, obviously that had a completely drastically different opinion and i and i'm always just kind of curious and wonder about that and then like you said though with the whole um the whole hunting thing i totally agree they there's a derogatory term not really derogatory but a term that they call them and they call them the fuds in in the hunting world that well that doesn't affect me i don't know you know and well sometimes when legislation comes about and it says semi-automatic handguns like we just saw that just happened in Canada. Well, that does affect you. That affects everyone. And I'll tell you what, um, a lot of guys probably wouldn't want to go backwards and just use their pump shotgun to, to hunt waterfall anymore. So people don't even realize, and, and it's just, it just makes me so curious. So that's why I had to ask, but. <laughs> um,
2: yeah. And you know, I, um, I think it's, is not something that we talk about a lot, but I think having some knowledge of uh, self-defense of shooting and handguns really does go hand in hand with hunting because, you know, I'm a woman. I often hunt alone. I am going into places in the middle of absolute nowhere. And if I run into, you know, I'm not going to carry a sidearm because I'm worried about like a mountain lion or a bear attacking me, Mm -hmm. but I like to know that if there's you know, somebody else who decides they want to pull up and camp right next to me in the middle of absolute nowhere, that I'm going to feel safe. And I don't, you know, when I'm out in the woods, I don't really consider my rifle to be self-defense ready. You know, Oftentimes I'm walking with it um, un- unloaded and kind of on a sling. And I just like to know that if I'm going to be out hunting by myself, I want to feel safe. And that's one of those situations where you are your only and best protection.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. That's, I mean, like I remember just reflecting on like my, my first Elcon. I, carried around the rifle and I had a sidearm and bear spray and by day two I was like man that's too heavy let's get rid of some of this weight so I ditched the pistol and then like day three I even ditched the bear spray I'm like heck with it I mean all I got to worry about is black bears anyway you know (laughs) and then my my cousin was like well what about mountain lions I was like I have a rifle he goes you're not even carrying around in it (laughs) so but I was like I'll take my chances I'm not worried about it but it just kind of comes back to what you said that I interviewed a girl that was talking about that and she goes, yeah, I always carry a sidearm, especially if I'm archery hunting and I do a lot of solo stuff. And I was like, oh, really? I was like, yeah, that, you know, the extra weight, I'm thinking in my head, you know, and then she goes, well, it's not so much for animals as I'm a female and I'm by myself and I'm, and I'm like, my gosh, I never, you know what I mean? It, it was one of those things that I never even stopped to think about that or put myself in that perspective to think, wow, there's that type of element that could be out there that, you know, you need that. And it's a terrible thing that someone even has to think that or do that. But I mean, it, I would rather see somebody to be able to defend themselves like that. That's it's just crazy. But it, it's a good thing. And it's a good thing that people become proficient with them.
2: Absolutely. And I think, especially, you know women are becoming hunters at pretty high rates now, and we're, you know becoming a fast-growing segment of the hunting world. And I think it's really important that people get to go out onto public lands in the back country and feel safe because if you don't feel personally safe, you're not going to go out and hunt. If you feel like you have to have, you know a buddy there with you all the time, it it just makes things much harder. And so I think, you know, if there's any part of you that feels like you're not going to be completely confident going into the woods by yourself, bears, people, mountain lions, whatever, (laughs) you know, get a (laughs) sidearm, get some training with that sidearm. Don't think it's just going to protect you because it's there. Um, And yeah, Yeah. I I definitely encourage, especially women, because I mean, I'm not saying that as like a victim mentality, (laughs) it's just a fact that, there are people who may take, try to take advantage of people in certain situations. And that's a real bummer, but, you know, arming yourself is a great way to pre- prevent that.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm kind of curious. Um, so you decided to go hunting and you went and you bought your tag, you scouted. What? How did it go? what did you do from there?
2: Uh, I did nothing. after I was <laughs> nervous. Um it really so. While I'm trying to figure out how to be a hunter, I'm also um, I've been cleaning skulls for people, um, kind of as a hobby, and then it started to kind of grow and it became a little bit of a business. Um, now it's my full time job. So I started to meet a lot of hunters who were bringing their uh, deer and elk heads in to have me do euro mounts, and yeah, you know, became kind of friendly with some of them and. Uh, at some point, I was talking to one of my customers about wanting to go out and harvest deer and how hard it was and all this stuff. And he uh, ended up offering to take me out and helping me get uh, permission to hunt some private land that he knew really well. And it ended up being the thing that made me feel comfortable enough to go out and join him and harvest my first deer. So that was really, really fortunate on my part. and I, I uh, don't know how much longer it would have taken me to harvest the deer for the first time if I didn't get that lucky.
1: <laughs> it might have been a lot lot more YouTube and googling, I'm guessing, right? I mean, was that yeah. was that actually like your main resource as far as um the information that you found? I mean, because I you know, without without that mentorship or that actual, you know, personal interaction with somebody, what what resources did you go to? What what did you use to try and find you know your way in the hunting space?
2: Yeah, well, um, I read a book. Well, so we mountain, out in um, the west side of Oregon. So I read the book called uh, Trophy Elk Trophy Blacktail Hunting. I want to say, um, and I had some really good insights just on you know what the animals are doing. And I read a lot about what deer actually do during the day <laughs> and seasonally. Um, I spent a lot of time, you know, every hike was suddenly like, let's look for a deer sign too while we're here. And um, I also did get permission to hunt on um, one of my wife's co property, which is a hazelnut farm and a tree farm. And I haven't harvested a deer there, but it gave me some really good opportunities to go somewhere that's gated and quiet and safe and just spend a lot of time figuring out what it's like to feel like I'm hunting <laughs> and i a full of deer out there, but, you know, honestly, just trying to figure out how it is you move, you know, how the speed at which you hunt, um, you know, do you like to sit around and stare at, you know, a, a hillside? <laughs> do you want to go in the woods and, you know, try to figure out where they're at and sneak up on them. Um, it was a really good opportunity for me to kind of experiment with different ways to go about it. And Uh, I've seen so many deer on that property. I've never (laughs) harvested a single one, but it always makes me feel really proud of myself when I even like see them, that they exist and they're there. Because sometimes I feel like, you know, um, I used to like walk around in the woods at night and be like super scared that like something was going to eat me, like a (laughs) mountain lion was just going to like step on me or like a bear was going to come at me or God knows what. And I've realized that like, there are not as many animals out there as I thought there were. (laughs) Right. So there's nothing like trying to find those animals to realize how unlikely you're going to run in with them is going to be.
1: <laughs> but so the blacktail, I mean, that's kind of a, a pretty elusive deer anyway. So if you're there and you're seeing them, that's that's a good start.
2: Yeah, I, I've managed to harvest two blacktail now, and I feel like maybe that gives me some hope since they are a little bit. Harder to find than some other things. I'm going to be going on my first mule deer hunt uh, in a couple weeks here. So I'm crossing my fingers, it won't be as uh, challenging. Although, you know, half the challenge is just being in the weather with the deer. Um, like it's almost always wet whenever I'm hunting, it's like going <laughs> to be the entire time. It's just like the rule of I go hunting, and it rains.
1: <laughs> the getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's the hard part. But once you get to that point, I think everything else just kind of falls in place. If you can immerse yourself in that moment, I find the hardest thing for me is on a day hunt because I do a lot uh, living in the Midwest. It's mostly day hunts and you've got your daily life, you know, c- scenarios and situations. Everything's fast paced. And then you get out there to the woods and you're on their time. And you're trying to move and make movements, and it's all in their time, and it's hard to just mentally say, "Okay, stop, slow down." I think that's the hardest thing for me, and, and then I'll even go mushroom hunting or something, and it's like, "What am I doing? What what is what am I running for? What am I?" Oh, look, there's another black oak. There's another black oak, and just trying to run to that tree slow down look around and i just i keep trying to i have to physically you know remind myself to to do that and i think that's something that a lot of people don't probably do
2: yeah i i definitely realized and i i mean like i said i've i've only been hunting a couple of years now and i feel like at this point i started so late that i will never be really really good at it but i like that every time i go out i feel like I'm a little bit better. Like I learned something last time that makes me like a little bit more comfortable or, uh, you know, a little bit better at it than the last time I was out. And I mean, like this year I'm, I'm going hunting in a totally different location, different species, different, you know, terrain. So I'm going to be really thrown off my game, I'm sure. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it's amazing. You know, you, I think so many people who hunt grow up in it and, I, I, I'm so jealous of people who get to spend their whole life immersed in this lifestyle because there's so much to overcome when you come into it late in life. You know, like you said, it's the mentality, it's, you know, slowing your brain down, uh, learning to pay attention to the little things, see, you know, tiny movements that you normally don't, get off your phone, just yes. enjoy. It. Yes you know it's just it's not something that i'm used to like my normal day is busy and full of technology and moving around and trying to you know work as quickly as possible and then you know going out into the woods your whole brain has to kind of reset and figure out how to function again as a human
1: (laughs) absolutely absolutely um so i'm kind of curious you you you, when you harvested the the first two or three deer was that all rifle or I see a trad bow behind you. So I'm kind of (laughs) curious Did uh, did you, when did you make that switch?
2: Um, I haven't made the switch officially yet. I'm still working on it. Um, but I, yeah, I've, I've harvested my, my only two deer with rifle. Um, and I am working on getting comfortable with a longbow so that I can hopefully harvest an animal with that. Uh, I, I'm not there. <laughs> I feel like, you know, I, I took a um, two day seminar on, you know, form, and I feel like that really, really helped me get comfortable shooting it. But I think there's, you know, comfortable shooting a hay bale in your backyard, and then there's comfortable shooting an animal walking around. And I think I'm a little ways from getting there.
1: <laughs> I hunted for a little bit with a longbow. I think it was like two, maybe three years. And I didn't kill very many animals during that time because I was kind of scared. Didn't, I questioned my ability and then I harvested one and I, I wounded another one. And then that's when I kind of just, I put it down and um, I I haven't really picked it back up yet, but I, I always, something about it fascinates me, just the simplicity of it. That's why I originally picked it up is because I had a compound bow and so many things broke in one season, sight pins, the, the wrap with the uh, fiber optics started fraying off and came uncoiled. And, and I went through three drop away arrow rests in one season. And I was like, I'm done. I'm done. And my buddy was making fun of me because he switched like two years before to the longbow. And he's like, well, I don't have any of those problems, <laughs> you know, just kind of jabbing at me. Well, I don't know. Mine's just fine. My bow works. Yeah, in fact, you know, I don't think my sights ever broke. (laughs) Just giving me all this crap, you know, and I was like, you know what? Okay, fine. All right, what should I get? And kind of just dove into it head first and shot an entire, uh, I don't know, five months with it or whatever it was and jumped into it. And I still miss it. Like, there's just the feeling there's nothing better than taking a wood arrow that you cut your own fletching and glued them to the shaft and just... Did it all, you know. You went all the way with it. It's not like you know a piece of carbon fiber that was rolled in a factory somewhere. It's different. It's got a different feel to it, and it's really cool. So I hope I hope one day you're comfortable enough to shoot it, and I want to see some pictures of something that you got. That'll yeah, be cool.
2: <laughs> I, I, I somewhat say it jokingly, but I'm also kind of serious. I, I will not be hunting animals with the drag bow until I'm hunting squirrels because I want to have a hard target. Um, cause if I can shoot a squirrel with the trad bow, I can shoot a deer. <laughs> and also, you know, I'm a little bit less emotionally invested in squirrels. So it's a little bit less of like a, you know, emotional, like, oh my God, if I miss this shot, it's going to be such a big deal. That's going to be hanging over my head. And then I have, you know, if I don't have a good shot on a squirrel, that squirrel is going to be fine. <laughs> like it's going to go right over him. The odds of me actually like hitting it and like injuring it to the point of, you know, I can't, it's just wounded and running off somewhere. Kind of unlikely, I think. So yeah, that's, that's my theory anyway, that if I can be like a really successful squirrel hunter, then I will then start to (laughs) game with the trad bow. (laughs) I have
1: taken some squirrels with my trad bow, so I can tell you that, that it's fun. Um, And you could actually, I don't know what kind of points you're going to use, but um, they make like these big round blunt points that look like a mushroom tip and those work really well for squirrels too. So you oh, could look cool. into that and then you don't have to worry about your arrow staying in the tree. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. That's so it's a, a little point.
1: tip for you. if you get, Don't use a broadhead or a field point because it'll stick in the tree. If you got a big mushroom tip on the end of it, it'll just hit the tree and bounce back.
2: Oh, good to know.
1: <laughs> so, um, yeah. I mean, that's awesome how you progressed into that journey and I'm glad to see that you did it and kind of excited to see. And I've noticed you say you're at a disadvantage, but I've noticed with a lot of adult, we'll call them the adult onset hunter. To me, it's like a little dirty word because it sounds like you're diagnosing a disease or something with it, you know, but, um, I've, I've noticed there's so many adult onset hunters that, that just they do really, really well. And I think part of it is they've got those life skills that they can kind of do more research than a younger person would and totally look up to a mentor. And they have the drive because they've gone through their whole life without hunting. They have to make a fully conscious decision and say, I want to do this. And when they make that commitment, they're going to go full force into it and fully commit to it. And that's, that's when you see a lot of progress in a short amount of time. So it's pretty cool. I'm I'm glad to see, and I'm glad you shared your story because it's pretty interesting. And I hopefully it inspires other people that maybe they can open up their mind to different things if they just kind of give it a chance.
2: Yeah, I hope so because I feel like you know, if I can be a hunter starting in my mid 30s and having come from the background of being a vegan animal rights activist, like. If that's not an argument for anybody can become a hunter at any time, I don't know what
1: is. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. That's pretty cool. Um, so before we go, I kind of want to just ask you real quick, what, uh, what are kind of your plans in the future for hunts? I know you were talking, like when we were talking a couple of weeks ago, you were trying possibly to go on a bear hunt. How did anything, any future or more plans on that or how's that going?
2: Yeah, if there's one thing that 2020 has taught me this year is that I shouldn't even bother making plans to do anything, because, man, it's been a wild ride. Um, I I was planning to go scouting for my mule deer trip out in eastern Oregon and simultaneously be trying to find a bear to uh, take home. But I ended up canceling the trip because we had uh, such bad smoke. Our, half our state was on fire uh, mm-hmm. very recently, and we had Really bad smoke, Uh, still had some fire activity in the area, so I was like, you know, it just doesn't feel like the right time to be on the other side of the state, so I'm just gonna hang out uh, until we get some rain. We've got rain happening literally right now, so I'm very happy, but but yeah, so uh, this year I'm doing my first mule deer hunt. Um, I'm gonna hopefully get out goose hunting with some friends this year. I've been really excited to try that. And we raise geese, but this year they just decided they weren't going to give us any babies for some reason. <laughs> Not a single egg hatched. So um, hoping to get some geese in the freezer. And then my my big goal right now, either later this fall um, or in the spring, is to try to seriously bear hunt because I've had bear meat. Uh, I love bear skulls and I do bear rugs with my work and it's just, just something that I've been really wanting to do. So fingers crossed, I will find a bear.
1: (laughs) So actually now that you bring that up, I kind of want to talk about that because you've got quite an interesting business. Not only do you do like the taxidermy side of, you know, European mounts and, and tanning hides and getting them ready for clients. But you also do something that I haven't ever really heard of until I heard it on the radio. And I was like, eh, it makes sense, but I've never heard of that with the whole pet thing.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, I just, uh, so my business is called Dermestarium. Shameless plug for the thing that nobody can say or spell.
1: <laughs> is it Dermestarium or Dermestarium?
2: dermestidarium Dermestid. uh, if, if people want to find it, they can go to beetlebonecleaning.com and that'll take them to me because I realized nobody could find my website. So you um, recently
1: changed it. <laughs> yeah.
2: well, it's just I didn't change it, but it'll just get you to the correct okay. place.
1: Okay.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Don't ask me to name my business for you. Um, but yeah, I, I started doing it just for European mounts and um, kind of the hunting taxidermy side of things. And then you know people would bring you know ask me if it was okay if they could bring their cat in or their dog and um, to get the skull or skeleton cleaned. And I was like, eh, sure, why not? You know, I can help people out and. Um, one thing that will put this in a little better context is, well. So domestic area, my, my bone cleaning business used to be my like, quote, side hustle while I was working full time doing pet aftercare. So I used to work in a flame-based crematory. I've done water-based cremation. Um, I've done kind of end of life counseling for people who were, uh, going through the process of wondering if it was the right time to euthanize their pet. So it was kind of just in my wheelhouse and I was like, well, marrying those two things together just sounds like the right thing to do. People want it. And um, I didn't know anybody wanted that. And then, you know, I started doing a cat skull here and there. Um, it turns out it's actually a really popular thing that people want to have done. And just this past uh, month, I launched a different division of my business, specifically just for pets. So it's called... Restwell pet memorials. And that is the place that people want their, you know, pet's skull or skeleton or their hide tanned or yeah, you know, some paw prints made, whatever they want. You know, you can pretty much do it all.
1: It's <laughs> pretty interesting. In my head, I just picture people having like when you go to a museum and you see like a Tyrannosaurus Rex or something where it's the skeleton that they've got like a little display or something of their cat or <laughs> something, you know. <laughs> But, I
2: have not had anything that big in yet. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but so that's really cool. And Okay, so before we go, I just kind of wanted to ask you, could you tell people where they can find you, Carla?
2: Yeah, so um, my business, Dermestadarium, can be found, if you can spell it, at com or com. And you can find me on Instagram at Carla B-R-A-U-E-R. I uh, don't know why people want to follow me on Instagram, but you can if you want to. <laughs>
1: <laughs> awesome. I appreciate you coming on, Carla, and I appreciate you talking to me and sharing your story. I think it's important, like I said earlier, that we, uh, we share this kind of story so we can maybe change people's perspective and uh, let people open their mind a little bit and see things from a different angle.
2: Well, I really appreciate being having the opportunity to share my story and being on here.
1: Okay. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you can check us out on Instagram or at publiclychallenged.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show.